another edition of Melodious Voice. This is Sad Times. My name is Kevin. I just have a really gentle voice going right now. It's very nice. Uh, Thank you so much for listening to Sad Times. If you are new, welcome. We will give you a quick primer. Sad Times is a show in which each episode we have a kind and generous guest who comes on and talks about events in their life that were traumatic, talks about very difficult times, because we believe that difficult stories are universal, but they are not always universally told. And so the goal of Sad Times is not to diagnose, solve, or judge any of these stories. It's to allow the stories to be told so that you listening, wherever you may be, will feel maybe a little bit less alone. So that's what Sad Times is. We do have a website. It's www.sadtimespodcast.com. Go there. We've got all 75 episodes, uh, as of this recording, that is. And we have a number of other things. We have a blog. We have a guest blog series. Go check it out. And if you haven't already, please subscribe uh, wherever podcasts magically appear on your device. And, of course, the goal here, again, is to share these stories. So if you do hear a story on Sad Times and you know of somebody in your life who would benefit from hearing it, please, please share that story. All well and good, but we got to pay the bills. So let's go to this week's sponsor. All right, let's see here. This week, Sad Times is brought to you by The Pen in Sean Hannity's Right Hand. When not focusing on the clear propaganda in Sean Hannity's many programs, I cannot help but be drawn to the pen that is always in his right hand. Is this sewn on? Glued on? What is it he is writing? Some erotic Reagan haiku? That's the pen in Sean Hannity's hand, like a prop on the hand of propaganda the puppet. All right, cool. Do not forget to... Support our sponsors by using the code F-A-K-E. That's F-A-K-E at checkout. Bills are paid. Brent, Wade, all right, here we go. Let's bring in our wonderful guest this week. Uh, He is a really, really cool guy with an amazing story in an amazing book called Into the Soul of the World, which we're going to talk about. His name is Brad. Hey, Brad, how's it going, man? Hey, Kevin. Great to see you. Mm. Good to see you as well, sir. So you are coming to us from Austin, Texas. But indeed, as we're going to get into your story, uh, you have not been in Austin, Texas your whole life. You have been, I mean, uh, there's that old Johnny Cash cover, that I've been everywhere song. I mean, you've been a lot, a lot, a lot of places. So um, how long have you been in Austin? I've been in Austin about two and a half years. Okay. Are they are they keeping it weird as the, the bumper stickers say? It's getting less weird every day, you know. Man. They're they're I mean, there's a few of us around trying to keep it weird, but um yeah, it's getting pretty techy and pretty pretty glitzy. Oh, that's right cuz oh, yeah, no. techy. I didn't even think about that, but that's Oh man, that's sad. Uh we need yeah. to clone Richard Richard Linklater and have him make some more stuff. <laughs> um okay, so as I said, you have been all over the place. You have had such a cool, in my estimation, cool career uh, and an even more uh, intense story. So tell us where you're from originally. I grew up uh, in Kansas, uh, just on the outskirts of Kansas City on the Kansas side. And, okay. um, yeah. And then I uh, went off to college in Virginia and then back to Kansas and then to Chicago for grad school. Ooh, Chicago. Mm-hmm. And um, when you were in Chicago, that's when you worked for Outside Magazine originally? Uh, yeah. So I started, I went to uh, Northwestern and University. And then the day after I graduated, I started as an intern at Outside Magazine, which was located at Clark and Division in Chicago. Oh, really? Right at Clark and Division, huh? Yeah. yeah. Nice. And then it, then it moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico, though. The whole magazine did in 94. So Right. Okay, and then you moved with it, which we're going to get to. Um, I became aware of you because of your book, uh, as I said, Into the Soul of the World. Now, you, we're going to get into it, but you have been a writer a lot of your life. Uh, This book tells not only the story of of your writing life, but the story before that and kind of uh, your journey to kind of rediscover yourself or even just to discover yourself. Yeah. And I think more and more every day we're understanding that, hey, I'm going to misquote it and probably mis- at, uh, give a misattribution, but I think it was Aristotle who said, give me uh, the boy through seven and I'll give you the man. Basically, like, the mm-hmm. child makes the man. So growing up, what was your family like? 
Yeah, I uh, around age twelve, um, I began to notice, um, you know, my father drinking heavily, and and it got worse. And um, I became the the truth teller of the family, and kept trying to call it out, trying to you know, can we have a conversation about this? And it just kept getting worse to the point where he was passing out every night. And, um, and meanwhile, there was uh, a lot of infidelity happening with my, with my parents. And, and I just was, you know, I became a very angry young man and nobody was seemed to be telling the truth. And, um, and there was a lot of dysfunction, you know, I know that probably, you know, every family has this dysfunction, but, Eventually, the lies uh, became intolerable to me, and I and I kept calling it out though, and I eventually got pushed out of my family, um, scapegoated, um, and uh, and to this day, essentially. Yeah, God, there's a lot there, and first of all, I'm sorry to hear that. I, I you know, what's the there's the um, the tagline for the movie Royal Tenenbaums was uh, "Family's not a word; it's a sentence." Mm. Uh, which is like the best tagline ever, which yeah. is not, I'm not, I'm just saying, I, I, I think it's very clever. So, but what I keep focusing on and what you just said was that you were 12 years old and you're seeing these things and you're feeling that you have to be the truth teller. Yeah. What, what type of things would you bring up? And, you know, did you have siblings? Tell us about that and, and kind of your place in it and what would happen when you tried to say, Hey, maybe dad's drinking too much. Yeah, I had an older brother and a younger sister, so I was the middle child, and um, and you know around that time, and, and I know I think we're going to get to it. I, I had been in a near drowning episode, which sort of had been um, kind of the original lie, where I came home from this near drowning and tried to, you know, I had scar uh, cuts and bruises on my side, and and was trying to, uh, you know, explain to my mother what had happened and. Uh, my father had stepped in and said that that I was uh, not telling the truth, that I was exaggerating, um, that my shirt got snagged on a twig, and and you know it just became this. Um, it became sort of an Alice in Wonderland situation. It, it seemed, you know, I kept nothing that I experienced was got acknowledged as truth. And I remember many times being at the dinner table, you know, trying to engage people in a conversation about what was happening and and albeit i was i was angry at the time and and so i you know probably wasn't bringing it up in the most politic way but you know can we talk about what's going on you see dad's drunk right here at the table with us and and you know my mother would would uh you know glare at me my my siblings would look at me like i was crazy um and it took you know we'll get to this but it took a long time to unravel and trust my own experience, which I knew all along was, was, was true, but I had sort of began to stuff down eventually. Yeah. Trust my own experience. It, it's so interesting that we have to even acknowledge that that's something we need to focus on. Right. Uh, I think that I've been 100% guilty of people saying, well, no, this is what happened. I'm like, Oh, okay. I guess I was wrong. You know, even if maybe I wasn't, um, even then, too, even though you're you're in this, as you say, truth-telling role, early in the book, you have a quote that, that I wrote down that says, back then, I was like my mother. I liked to smile, and I liked it when other people were happy with me. Mm-hmm. Looking back, I didn't really know myself very well at all. I was simply playing a part. Yeah. And, you know, as a 12-year-old or however old you may be, you can't know that you're playing a part. And it, it sounds like you're kind of talking about uh, you talk about people pleasing and, and things of that nature. So, um, and you said infidelity. So I, I have to ask, how did you, how were you made aware that that was something that was going on in your parents' marriage? And what, were you like a confidant for one of your parents or, or how did that come up? Yeah. So I became a co- the confidant of my mother and which I had already intuited, um, the affair going on. And, um, it was with a neighbor woman and, uh, you know, I, I still actually, I'm having, I have a hard time even telling the truth right here. Obviously I'm kind of dancing around it, which I'm, I'm, you know, it, it feels betrayal. It still does to mm-hmm. my family to, to be speaking the truth, which is something that, you know, I, I, I work with all the time, but yeah. So my father was having an affair with, with the neighbor woman. And, um, I, 
I figured it out. I mean, it was something, you know, there was just something that was distrustful that I was feeling. And I knew that the stories that I was being told about our family, that we were perfect. That was the other part of it. We weren't just a decent family. We were a perfect family, you know, high achieving, um, you know, good looking, high achieving, um, perfect family. And, um, and I didn't experience that at all. And, um, so, and then my mother began, um, revealing, um, more and leaning on me and, and, and I began, she began to ask for hugs and, and, and advice about whether, uh, she should leave my father. And, um, I've since learned that uh, there's a term for that. It's called emotional incest. Um, but, um, at the time I felt like it was something I needed to do to support her. And I don't think a day passed in school where I wasn't thinking about pouring the gin down the drain. I wasn't thinking about the hurt my mother was experiencing. And I began to live almost outside my own body, more concerned about her and the, my family disintegrating than I was my own experience, my own happiness, my own sense of being a uh, you know an, an autonomous person oh and and do, do you feel then basically i think what you're saying in, in in some sense is you were not living for yourself you were living to make sure everybody else in that house was okay yeah and then yeah. it sounds like when you would bring it up whether it be uh, in an in an angry tone or, or however you were met with s severe resistance your mother would glare at you what would your dad say you know he at, at those dinners, he would be slurring his speech and he would sort of get this kind of helpless look. And, and um, but, you know, when he was sober, it, it became more of a of an intense, um, you know, glare. Uh, um, but at, in those in those dinner experiences, it was it was just sort of like. I don't even know what it what it's something a way to describe it is sort of like. Uh, you know, Alice in Wonderland, this feeling that, that like, that the topsy-turvy, like, what is true is not being acknowledged, and what is false is what everybody's living. Right. Okay. And, no, but you weren't hearing this from your siblings, so it's basically you felt alone, and then you used the term scapegoat. I think that you had said that you had started to act out as you were saying at the dinner yeah. table and, and everything, but let's go back to this, the drowning incident a little bit, please yeah. or near drowning. Excuse me. You were on a canoe trip with your yeah. dad and some other people. Tell us just uh, as much as you're able to let sure. us know kind of what happened there so that we can get a better sense of that. Um, this is about the same age around 12. Um, I was part of a, you know, Kansas is obviously a conservative place. I was, it was a religious place. I, I joined um, this group uh, called Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and it was. I was, was in that. You were all right. Yeah. <laughs> it was a very popular thing in my school, and um, you know, we on Saturdays go eat donuts and play basketball, and then have about you know forty five minutes of of kind of a Bible study with with people that were really cool though. The the the, the leaders was were really cool and committed to kids you know so it was kind of a it was kind of a godsend for for a lost you know you know, boy um but we had we had this annual canoe trip and so we went to arkansas in the white river it was the north fork of the white river and you know it was it was had rained all spring um the the manager of the campground had had highly suggested that we not float that it was too high that people he'd had uh, a couple of canoes that had been bent around trees and people barely got out alive the previous weekend um you know we were with these parents these were mostly professional type parents lawyers doctors that kind of a crowd and and they had, were having none of none of the uh, advice not to run it we come too far and so um and no one knew how to canoe to be quite honest and so you know it, it was sort of like as i describe in the book you know we we push out into the into the water and we're going backwards and, you know, sideways. And my dad's, you know, who's clueless about canoeing is telling me from the beginning that I'm the power. And if I don't supply enough power, he can't control the boat, which um, I later learned uh, as a, I later learned how to canoe that the guy in the stern you know, needs to know how to control the boat no matter what. Mm. Um, so we, you know, everyone's laughing at us as we push off. Well, 
we survived the morning, you know, and there's, there's beer being drunk by the parents and, you in know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, well, on, I mean, you know, everyone had coolers full of beer. Oh, I mean, that okay. was just part of the thing. Sure. So, you know, we have lunch on a, on a sandbar and then we push back in and, um, we had to portage around a tree and as we pushed back in we got going sideways again but this time the water was higher and faster and uh we started taking on water on the side and eventually um you know we tipped over and i was floating down the river um with a life jacket on and um suddenly i just felt you know almost like when you see uh you know a parachutist get kind of when the parachute uh comes out you know the way that they're jerked back uh, up it looks like anyway um that i had that sensation and and i didn't know what was going on and i i suddenly i felt i felt next to me that uh, that i basically realized that my life jacket had snagged on a submerged log and i got pulled under at first and then i got sent back up to breathe and uh and eventually i just got stuck there and uh, my head my you know I was underwater up to my chin and I just started, you know, looking up at the sky. Um, I, I actually saw my father float over to the, to the bank. I saw him get out of the river and, um, every now I was there for a few minutes. I don't know how long, you know, if it was, I don't know if it was five minutes or more or 10 minutes, but, but I was still stuck there and the, and the log was cutting my side and, um, my father just was paralyzed on the side and, and he just, uh, I still can picture his, his mouth agape. I mean, helpless. And I don't know what happened. He froze. Um, so meanwhile, I'm just sitting here on this log and, um, I thought I was going to die, you know, and I was, I was praying, I was, um, raging at, at God and, and, you know, sort of like, I, I this was, this was going to be my death. I re realized and, and, uh, and just then, um, I felt a something hit the back of my head, and I looked up and I saw my friend Bill and his dad, and they they had seen me stuck in the middle of the river, and they rammed into the log, which knocked me free, and I floated uh, further down and was scooped up by our our the director of our program and put into the bottom of his boat, and I remember just weeping in in the in the boat at that point. And your and so your dad is frozen. And so, did you ever ask him, "Hey, why, you know, did you have a discussion with him? Why didn't you come over there? You know, what happened? Like, what was his reaction once you were safe?" You know, he he essentially, I, I, maybe he felt embarrassed. I don't know, but he he just told me to get out of the bottom of the boat um, and get back in the canoe. And we didn't end up having a conversation then. I was I was traumatized i was i was in shock um for the rest of the time and then when i got home as i began you know told the story earlier um you know to tell my mother about the event um he denied it happened and and to this day he he still you know laughs uh when i bring it up um that that my shirt got snagged on a twig and you know i've i've since you know learned a lot about denial learned a lot about narcissism and and um and i now understand that that he needed to protect his his ego um but at the time i didn't understand it and even up through my 20s and 30s you know there was a there was a way that i learned to minimize the event myself um even though i knew it was true that throughout my entire life you know it wasn't until you know, my forties or so that I began to kind of remember or not remember. I remember the entire, but to, to feel, I began to yeah. feel how, what a, what a, what a, what a violent incident it was and how close to death I really was. Yeah. I mean, it's harrowing. And it, you said I was forced to process the violent episode myself. So I blamed myself. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something, another thing that we as people, don't often think about like if and and you said given no other options i agreed to the blame and that self-blame that habitual blaming voice grew into a brutal muscular and ruthless inner critic and let me tell you something brad mm -hmm. it's like you were writing about me and i think a lot of people mm -hmm. probably yeah. listen to this so 
did you did you have that inner critic before this incident or do you think that this was for lack of a better term the jumping off point that really had that be born which then as again as you said and so well written brutal muscular and ruthless inner critic yeah you know i think that was the beginning of it i had been um you know i had been a I, I thought a happy kid when I was when I was younger before the drinking and before this incident, but you know I'm not quite sure. But that that was uh, you know, and it it took a long time. I mean, I had a, an inner critic that just would not allow me to to make a decision about anything without it without it critiquing it. And, and I, I've since learned, of course, that that that's a. I mean, we all have inner critics, but but that brutal inner critic is is a symptom of of trauma and and it's also a symptom particularly of complex trauma and so it just it grew you know and i've since also i've learned so much and you, you know about this i'm sure too but you know gabor mate talks about you know the the two things we we need um as kids are you know authenticity and connection Ooh. and those things can become at odds with each other when you know when a parent is not telling the truth about things um we we learn to to deny ourselves to deny our authenticity to to be a people pleaser to agree to the stories of other people so that we stay connected so we stay um, connected to our parents because the cost of 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 telling a different story is too high is is being is being pushed out of the family which is eventually actually what happened to me so um so that yeah wow yeah um. And, and you talk about, you said trauma and complex trauma. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a, a, your understanding of the difference between those two things? Yeah, well, the, the canoeing accident is an example of, of an acute trauma, um, you know, or, uh, uh, you know, like, a, like a, a war veteran might have trauma from something specific or a car accident, that kind of thing. And, um, and then complex trauma is sort of trauma that from uh, a thousand cuts, you know, it's sort of, it's the... It's what happens um, when, you know, there's lots of criticism of you when, um, again, when you're not living in, in a, the same reality as your family, um, you know, from scapegoating. And I'll talk a little bit just for a minute about scapegoating. Um, you know, it's uh, in families that are in denial, um, usually one of the kids, usually the, the, the feeler um, ends up taking on the burden of of the the feelings that are pushed away from the people uh from the other members of the family sort of like um they're in denial about their own pain for example and so the the the, the sensitive child will will take on the burden of their shadow basically and and that shadow material is is their own self-hatred their own um um you know dark stuff and and so you know there's a there's a biblical story in leviticus um about you know this tribe that's uh having difficult times and so they 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 have a ceremony where they take um goat a goat and they basically perform a ceremony and dump all of their sins on this goat and they send it out into the desert to die and you know there's there are most of the people I've been told that, that end up in in therapist's office and psychiatrist's office often are the another term for the scapegoat is the identified patient. And so the, the family system is sick, but the only person that's showing the illness um, in a way that is diagnosable is the identified patient. So they have taken on the illness of the family. And now they're in treatment, uh, whereas, you know, and, and therapists will, will invite family members in and they'll see it. They'll see that this family is fucked up. Uh, and this one one person who's actually dealing with the pain is the one who's in treatment, though. So that mm, boy. Yeah, I, I um I think that's a really, really good explanation. Authenticity and con connection uh, are are also really good. That that must be why I just kept watching L.A. Law as a child. Mm. Mm, that's not true. <laughs> I've never seen L.A. Law, but I, I thought it was funny. <laughs> uh, we're gonna get to 
one of the coolest things ever, by the way, in a moment, uh, some of mm. some stuff from your writing career. But you talk a lot in the book, and this kind of becomes one of the big points in the book. You, at what age were you when you uh, were di- you were diagnosed, I believe, with bipolar disorder? Mm-hmm. Is that correct? How old were you when that happened? I was about twenty three, and I had a, a family friend that um, was a high powered lawyer that had had was all excited about his new bipolar diagnosis. This is around nineteen ninety or eighty nine. And this is at the at the emergence of um, of me- the medication model of psychiatry, um, and you know I, I was sort of it was sort of a perfect storm when I was starting to have my issues. Psychiatry was going from you know kind of a talk therapy to utter, to a pure medication model, and so I this 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 lawyer friend of my family's took me to his psychiatrist. He said, "I know what's wrong with you." This, this friend said, "You know you're bipolar like me." Well, I was only I was only suffering from depression. I'd never been manic or anything like that. Um, and I spent forty five minutes in the office um, with this psychiatrist um, and told him all kinds of stories. Um, told him about you know I was a very religious kid at the time, and uh, and I had all these kind of little mystical experiences. And I told him about that. I told him about my anger. I told him that I had this VW bus and I never felt more free than when I, you know, took my bus out on the highway and was got away from my family. And after 45 minutes, he he stopped the conversation. Uh, he didn't ask me a single thing about my family. Um, and, and I later found out that he actually uh, knew and was friendly with my father. So um, but after 45 minutes, I um I, he said, here's a prescription for lithium. Um, you have bipolar disorder. And, you know, which at the time I was confused. It didn't really land on me true. But at the time, it also gave me an answer. You know, it gave me, right. it, it let me off the hook. It let my family off the hook because it was a brain chemistry problem. That was all that was happening. Yeah. It, it's almost like, okay, I washed my hands of that. Good yep. to go. Now I just take these pills. Uh, and speaking of taking pills, I believe at one point you said you were up to 23 pills a day. Yeah. And, and um, tell us about, and I, I want to be clear, we, we talk about medication a lot on this show. And, you know, medication is a good thing for people when it does work. And sometimes mm-hmm. you have to try one medication and find, oh, that's maybe not the best and go to the other. But you talk about kind of how you there was just a fog around you because you were on so many pills. Did you did you become dependent on these pills without even knowing it? Yeah, I became dependent on the pills. I became dependent on psychiatry, to be honest. You know, it was a place, it was a safe place where I could come in and tell my stories and and you know tell about the 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 suffering I was having and and um, they would nod it's empathically and and. But I was at the time I was, you know, I was a travel writer and I was traveling around the world and I was just coming back and getting more and more depressed. And every time I came in, um, you know, there's another pill was added. Um, It started out with with lithium. Then it was Prozac. Then it was, uh, you know, all these other mood stabilizers. Then it was, uh, you know, stimulants and dexedrine. And then it was antipsychotics. And then it was pills to control my appetite after the antipsychotics led me to take eat 10 bowls of cereal a day and eventually um and then i was on sleeping pills um eventually i was sleeping till noon um and hardly getting out of bed at all and um and and after that he upped the dosage of dexedrine which got me on my feet but now i was a zombie i mean i literally was like a, a like a psychopathic zombie. I mean, I didn't do it. You know, I was just sort of walking around in a no feelings at all. Um, and uh, I essentially at that point, more or less went to bed and that lasted five or six years. I don't even, I'm not sure exactly how long it was. Um, and uh, my career basically began to end. Um, I still tried to do a couple of stories here and there. I began to make mistakes Um stumbled around uh then i basically just stopped working altogether yeah and you do i i love some of the parts of the book where you are talking about hey look look what i'm doing i am an editor at outside magazine i'm doing these but why and 
I'm saying this very inartfully, but you're basically saying, why can't I, why am I not happy? Am I not finding what I'm looking for? I'm going to read another quote that really stuck Mm -hmm. out to me. It's a bit long, uh, but uh, for, for this, it wasn't yet clear to me that it was my propensity to use deductive reasoning to pull apart who I was that was actually limiting a deep understanding of myself. Either I was a label, adventure writer, and an adjective, successful, or I was a diagnosis, a sick person, a failure. I deconstructed myself, diminished myself, abused myself, limited myself, and allowed others to do it for me. And I was tired. Mm. The last part, I mean, all of that resonates with me, and I bet resonates with a lot of people listening, but... What really stuck out to me is I deconstructed myself, diminished myself, abused myself, lend myself, and allowed others to do it for me, and I was tired. I've said, in my experience, I've like taken, it's like I uh, put myself in my hands and I hand it over to somebody else, and I say, can you do something with this? Can you mm-hmm. tell me what I am? And I do that without even thinking about it, and then that, of course, gives the power to that person who has no idea what, what's going on. And then they may say something that may completely destroy a person yeah. because they don't understand that. So you were successful, but you and, and you're, you're the pills, more and more pills, and you're, you're traveling the world, but you just couldn't find the happiness. And so you said you kind of went to bed for five or six years. Mm-hmm. Where, where did you when you came out, how did you come out of that? Like what, what occurred to kind of make change the trajectory of your life? Yeah. Um, I started on, uh, I, I, he, he prescribed a new, a brand new antipsychotic to me called Abilify. And, and I got off of the heavier, um, the Zyprexa and the, and the Risperdal and the Seroquel that I'd been on and, and the Abilify was a newer drug and it, it was less sedating. And so suddenly, but it was also kind of activating. And so I found myself waking up at like three thirty or four in the morning and, but I was starting to come alive again. And, and, um, and I began to, to feel more again. And at that point, um, you know, I, that point I, I I began, you know, my marriage though, it was falling apart at that time. And so, um, I found myself to be single and I was now starting to feel again. I was still on a, a, a crap load of medicine though. I mean, this is not like, um, I'm, I'm well at this point, but I, I started to get a glimpse, I guess, is the way to see it, that the, of this person that I used to be or a person that I was to become. And, then I was I was dating a um, a woman who I became friendly with her nephew. He was on a massive amount of drugs too for supposedly bipolar. And one morning we got a phone call, um, and uh, he had been he had been hospitalized before for overdoses. And this time we from the tone we knew what what had happened that he he died. And um, we went over there. It was about five thirty in the morning, and I sat with his body, we'd become quite close. And, and in fact, I left out a part, you know, that fall, um, you know, we met, we met, you know, weekly for, for talks and, and we kind of both got, we're into Carl Jung and, and, uh, and he said that he was going to try to write a, a, a red book, um, sort of like Jung had, and he was going to try to figure his way out of his depression. And if he failed, he was probably going to kill himself. And, at that point, I was still so medicated that I, I just said, I, I understand, Paul, and, and I, 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 you know, I get it. I get it. And, and, you know, a month later, there I was sitting with his body on the floor, and I, uh, I remember putting my hand on his chest and, and just sort of crying and realizing that if I didn't get off these meds, that I was going to end up like him, um, that, um, that I was trapped and, and, and so I remember going home and taking a nap that afternoon and just like, it was just like almost like an eye inside me woke up and, and I began to see, you know, and I began to find some, some spirit again and began, knew that I was going to start getting off these meds and, uh, and, uh, you know, so that was, that was sort of the impetus. Okay. And that, that's all uh, very I'm sorry uh, to hear about that loss and and how traumatizing that must have been and even to sit with the body, but then to see the, you know, hear the realization that you're having and say like, 
you know, maybe something spiritual is awakening. So at this point in your yeah. life, were you still a Christian? Or did you have a religious uh, affiliation at all? Not at all. No, I, I had I had left Christianity behind when I went off to college. Um, I became a humanist. I started, studied philosophy in college. Um, I became a journalist and was very science and fact oriented, which I still am. Um, but I was sort of just the facts, ma'am. And and so at that point, I was not spiritual at all. Although you know, I there was a longing in me that whole time for for some spiritual connection but i was not i was not a spiritual person at all and do you think that you knew that you had that longing for spiritual connection or is it something that you could or was it something that you could not name it was something i couldn't name although i knew on some level i knew and, and maybe my unhappiness at that point was was my disconnection from from a from a spirituality um you know, I think that that living the life of a journalist and just the facts had had kind of painted me into a corner that I had I had been a, a spiritual kid. And, you know, I don't understand why some people are spiritual and others aren't. I just do know I agree with I agree with Jung that that um, that we have an instinct for for God. And, and I don't you know, you can say that that's um just an instinct, like an instinct for sex or something, it doesn't necessarily prove a God exists. And so I'm, I'm able to have that conversation, but I just, I knew that I was a spiritual person and that I needed to be connected to something. But I also knew at that point that I needed something that, that also coincided with science and reality, that I was no longer able to, to live in the magical, you know, fundamentalist Christian uh, point of view of my childhood. I had to find something that, that was, connected to reality and and satisfied this longing inside me for connection to something greater. Yeah, uh, and I think that's really well put, and uh, I, I think that I've, I've struggled with some of that myself, spirituality, what I am, what it is that I'm longing for, uh, but also wanting to be based in fact. It's, it's, it's quite a conundrum, uh, for sure. And mm-hmm. Um, so you said so this happened and you uh, you lost your friend to suicide which is terrible mm-hmm. at this point were you uh, please forgive me were you living in Colorado Springs at this point no I was living in Santa Fe at this point Santa still. Fe okay uh-huh. cool. at that point um, I had had seen an article in in a, in a paper a small article about a trail in Israel called the Jesus Trail and um, that I and I decided, you know, I need. I was going to try to resurrect my writing career, mm. so I I researched this trail. I contacted the developers of it, and I I pitched the New York Times. I pitched an editor there that I'd worked with before years earlier, and she said go, you know. And so I'm like, all right. So I I uh, bought a ticket and told my girlfriend I was going to Israel. And I wasn't sure how long I was going to be. Um, but I was going to also, I was going to hike this trail and I was also going to kind of walk in anywhere that Jesus walked. At that point, you know, I was just, lo- I was longing, longing for connection. I, I suppose part of me wondered if, if I could believe in, in Christianity again. So, and you know, it's a little bit misguided to, to believe that you could walk in, in, you know, Jesus' footsteps and, and find, you know, the pathway back to spirituality. But it was a, it was a deeply, you know, but I spent I spent like five weeks over there doing that, and came back and wrote the article. I still was not convinced of any spirituality, but then then I got the idea I wanted to go to Palestine, and so a couple months later I I wrote the New York Times again, and and she said go, and so I went and, and spent uh, five weeks in Palestine and mm-hmm. wrote that article. That article ended up appearing in Newsweek, however, but um, but at that point. When I came home, I was exhausted. I was also, I knew, I knew, I didn't find Jesus, but I knew that uh, that I, I was more convinced than ever that I was going to find a spiritual path. And and at that point, uh, several things happened, but I ended up uh, moving on from that relationship and moving to Boulder, Colorado. In Boulder, I said Colorado Springs. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Yeah. yeah. 
And, and I began, you know, I'd, I'd practiced yoga since I was uh, in my 20s, and, but it was just exercise to me. But I was always curious. You know, I kept looking over. There was an altar in my yoga studio with these pictures of these Indian saints and gurus. And I'm like, man, what is that about? You know, and, and didn't really have much connection with it. But and this is perhaps getting complicated. But in, in 1999, as a young uh, writer, I was uh, 33. I had gone to India um, for Wired magazine to write about the, the tech industry there that was just mm. getting underway. And while I was there, I went to Varanasi, which is a holy city on the Ganges where people go to die. And, and and I went and watched the bodies burn there because people come there to die and they burn bodies on the on the the side of the Ganges and and that was a deeply moving experience and then I and I went into a temple a Shiva temple and I was just fascinated by these sadhus these holy men that were there that seemed both crazy and also deeply deeply spiritual and connected and and I never I never kind of got over that experience and so when I moved to Boulder, I began practicing yoga again, and this time I began studying it and and studying it. The fact that it was it was um, people call it a science. I don't know if I agree with that, but it was it was deeply connected to reality. It was deeply connected to you know um, the facts of your life, but that it also had room for for a spirituality and a soul. And I began to start to try to feel my soul and in yoga your soul is connected to the soul of the world and um and over time i began to get more connected to my body through yoga and i began to get more connected to my heart and i began to fall into this world of of the heart that that i began to explore and it began to make a lot of sense that the head the brain is a is a is a beautiful, beautiful machine, but it's it is a deductive machine. It's a pulling apart kind of a machine, uh, like diagnosing. You know, it's mm. sort of a. But the heart is a place, um, and I ended up calling a friend who was a neurologist and said, "You know, I'm I'm kind of reading all this spiritual stuff about the heart. I'm reading Rumi poetry. I'm reading, you know, and, and the heart is this this spiritual place where." things can resolve where it's not so binary. Is there any truth to the heart being, you know, a center of wisdom? And he said, yes. He said, there's the heart can area, the heart area, not the heart organ, but contains, you know, millions of, of, uh, cells similar to the ones that are in your brain. Um, and it is a place of wisdom and, and, you know, it can be thought of as that he was a, he was a neural, he wasn't going to go so far to say that, but yes, there it's so, you know, it just con it convinced me that this was real, and and I be you know I, I hate to get ahead of ourselves, but I began working with a trauma therapist who was a Buddhist, and and we began working on forging a pathway from my head to my heart, and and that became the focus of my life, uh, and seeing seeing myself in the world through this more generous place than just this binary brain. Man, and uh, I think that is a message that we all forget, all of us, mm -hmm. because we think that, you know, I'm this is an audio platform, but I'm pointing at my neck. We think that life is above the that that's mm -hmm. it because that's where the thoughts are. Yeah. Uh, and when I read that, specifically about what your neurologist friend said about the heart center, there are very many there are many moving passages within your book where you kind of stop and you put your hand on your heart and you try to yeah. center yourself. And, and these are during some great, greatly stressful moments. Um, and, you know, y y let's talk about the trauma therapist, because this is yeah. another thing that I think was really important, which is going to kind of bring us back to what we started talking about. So you're in Boulder. Wait, before we go to the trauma therapist, I want to yeah. ask about one of my favorite parts of the book. <laughs> Tell us about blue, please. Yeah. Blue, uh, so when I moved to Boulder, um, you know, I knew nobody and, and I began working with a psychiatrist who suggested I get a dog and I'd had dogs in my life before, but, um, so I went to this, this, you know, shelter and blue, blue was, he was an, he was a pit bull mix, um, colored blue. And he was, he was quite anxious. I could tell. And, but we just, I went in and sat with him and we bonded immediately and I took him home and, 
the first night I put him in a crate to go out and get him food. And when I came home, he dismantled, he dismantled his crate. And, you know, I, as I got to know him, I realized he, his teeth were ground down from, he'd been on a chain probably, oh. or in a cage. Um, he had buckshot and in, in his side, he'd been shot at, um, and he had other health problems, but, but he and I became, uh, just like a single organism. And I did a lot of walking in Boulder, a lot of walking the river, the, the Creek that runs through yeah. town and, mm. and blue and I became just you know, inseparable. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And there's that wonderful picture of you two where he's kind of, it's like, he's like laying and kind of sticking <laughs> his tongue out where you guys are on yeah. the couch. That's in the book. Uh, and I loved the fact that you, one, you moved there, you knew no one, you got blue, but you, uh, every day you were walking, it sounds like about the same path along the river. Mm -hmm. And that speaks to, you know, sometimes you don't know where to go, but it's just like one foot in front of the other, one foot in front of the other. Yeah. And I, I got that sense from you as you were rebuilding your life in Boulder, you know, with, with blue and speaking of the river, you there, you have a chapter, uh, in there called the river is everywhere. Yeah. Tell us what that means. Yeah, that's, that's a line from Siddhartha. Um, and toward the end of the book, um, he begins to, to experience that the, the river he's living by is everywhere. The stream of consciousness is everywhere. Um, and, you know, for me, I, I found myself walking this river every day. And I was like, you know, at first I didn't even think about it. I just like rivers. I, I've loved rivers. But then, I, you know, then I learned about this idea that Freud had that, that of... Uh, that we're drawn to, you know, the same problems that we were unable to solve. And so it began to make sense to me why, I, you know, I'd almost drowned on a river. And so here I was walking a river as if that was going to somehow solve the trauma of my life, uh, both of the trauma, the specific trauma of that accident, but almost like it was going to solve the trauma of my life. And, um, so yeah, that's that's the river. The river yeah. is everywhere, and it, it is still everywhere. You know, I still I still can hear the river uh, in my in my skull the, uh, from the from the White River in Arkansas. It, it never go, it never really goes away. Yeah, and uh, you, so, but tell us, yes, and we're going to talk about that trauma, the trauma work you did with the trauma, and how that brought you back to that White River. Tell us how this psychiatrist, I believe you said was a Buddhist, tell in Boulder, and obviously you told us the story about when you were about 23 and you're like, hey, I do these things. Like, here's some lithium. You have bipolar. See you later. Um, tell us about your wariness when you went to this new psychiatrist and how it was different for you. Yeah. Well, at this point, um, you know, I'd been with that psychiatrist that the answer for, to everything was medication. And I was really anxious and nervous when I went into this new psychiatrist. I knew I needed help. Um, you know, I still had a lot of problems. I knew that I did no longer believed I was bipolar and I was worried about what he was going to say. I was worried about being further pathologized. I was worried about my, my passivity or, or, um, knack for believing psychiatrists too that was almost my biggest fear you know that that they would say something and i would believe it and so i but i went in there with a little more um backbone this time and, and he was he turned out to be a brilliant man who who basically said eventually let's get you off all these meds and or as many as we can and, and see see what who you are and then we can start to, you know, if we need to go back on something or whatever, we can do that. But so he began taking me off um, all of the heavier medications. And then we got down to an antidepressant and, and an ADHD med, which I still, both of which I still am on today. And, uh, and you know, meanwhile, I was also began working with a, with a therapist that was a body somatic oriented therapist. And I began, you know, with all the yoga and with the somatic work experiencing you know a solidness to my body that that i had bypassed that i had you know that, that i was running away from because of the trauma you know one way trauma shows up for people and for me is is this really um this feeling of of um it's in it lives in every cell and it's almost like you do want to run away from it whenever i get into a situation that feels um feels uh, traumatic or a reminder of the trauma, I, 
I, I literally just wish I could get out of my body. It's a very uncomfortable feeling. And so I began to work with those feelings and began to relate to them differently. Um, so, yeah. So when you say you began to relate to them differently, did that lead to you to not fight them and so uh, more so accept them? Or did it just give you a better understanding of them and they were still uncomfortable? All of the above. Um, you know, I, one of the things that, that you know, trauma has become such a, a catch word, a, yeah. pop, a popular word now. And, and um, you know, people are talking about their trauma triggers when they get cut off in traffic or whatever, or they, or someone gives them some negative feedback. And, and I don't want to minimize anybody's experience, but there's, you know, there is trauma, diagnosable trauma. And, um, and so I, I think what I was going to say was that there are a lot of people who are claiming now that you can basically fix your trauma, you know, you can get rid of it. And that's not my experience. I've worked my ass off on, on my trauma. I've, and, and my experience is that, that it still lives in my body, but now I understand it when it starts to activate, I, I relate to it different. I can, I can have compassion for myself. Um, I can also just be conscious and bring a mindfulness to it to know that that's the old stuff coming up and that's not, you know, and, and I learned basically my, as this therapist and who became quite an important teacher to me in Boulder, she, she basically taught me to keep one foot in the present whenever the trauma got activated. And I learned, you know, okay, that part of me can get swept away into the past with the, the traumatic feelings in my body, mm -hmm. but I can, I can keep one foot in the present moment and realize that I'm here now. And, and it was a gift to work with this woman who was a, a, a lifelong Buddhist. And, um, you know, I learned so much about psychology and Buddhism from her and it really was life-saving. Uh, yeah. And you said compassion for the self. I, I think that's another thing yeah. that was forgotten a lot. And you said in the river is everywhere chapter, you said the world doesn't hand out love or even acceptance. We must give those important things to ourselves. Yeah. And that's so true. And I think that speaks also to what you're saying is, um, oh, we're going to solve trauma. This is how we do it. And you said that a moment ago that you, you, your body, you felt more solid in your body or your body became more solid. What, mm -hmm. what do you mean by that? And how did that affect your mental health when that, that change was occurring? Yeah, I learned, I learned to feel my body again. And, and again, that came from, you know, the somatic therapy work and it came from the yoga of, of just, um, you know, experiencing myself as a full human being embodied human being who who has a mind but also has a body and, and that feeling of solidness began to grow so that when when you know I, I talk about the abyss in my in my book this feeling of utter panic of of almost of of non-existence and this fear that would come up around that um and as my body grew more solid feeling I, I could do things to feel my body so that I knew that I wasn't going to utterly be annihilated. You know, that's it's, uh, this feeling of annihilation had haunted me my entire life. And, and I can now lean on the solidness of my body. I'm a full bodied human and I'm, I'm not going to be swept away by these panics, you know? Yeah. And, and another thing in the next chapter, and I know I keep quoting it, but mm. some of these quotes that I, I took notes and I put some of these in bold because it was just like, hey, Kevin, he's talking right to you, so just go mm -hmm. ahead and bold that, will you? <laughs> uh, you said you can't think your way out of a prison made of thoughts. Mm -hmm. You know what, Brad? I'm going to keep trying. Okay. <laughs> How long did you work with this woman? I worked with her for three or four years. Yeah. Yeah. And... Let's go back to the spirituality thing, because right. thing, Jesus, I don't mean to minimize it, spirituality. <laughs> yeah. uh, and you had that trip to India for Wired Magazine, but then in the book, you kept talking very similar, I think, uh, to when you, you said, I need to go to Israel and walk in Jesus' footsteps and follow this trail. You More and more, you said, I need to get back to India, and I need to go yeah. to a specific place and tell us about where you needed, uh, felt you needed to go, and then what happened when you went in the cave there and, and that experience. Yeah. Well, I had I had become, um, you know, a fan of the teachings of Ram Dass, who um, 
had been Richard Alpert at Harvard back in the day and, and the psychedelic uh, kind of birth of psychedelia. But he became he had gone to India um, in the in the late 60s and this this utter um, intellectual you know, psychologist had had this uh, life-changing experience with an Indian guru named Neem Karoli Baba. And he had, um, this, this guru had, had, you know, told him all these things about his life that he couldn't have known. And he, but basically he spent, he spent, you know, a year there and came back as Ram Das. And I was so fascinated by his, his, um, his conversion and by, by, the fact that he was he was a powerful intellectual and he gave it all away and and um and something in that this spoke to me and i was also listening to the music of this man krishna das and he had also been with this guru and i just began to feel drawn to you know to go to this place and experience it for myself and and uh i just had to go there and and you know and i i didn't know i was really actually not knowing what I was going to expect there. I, I don't, you know, I wasn't expecting a conversion like that. Um, but I, I got over there and, uh, this, this friend of mine told me about a yogi that lived in a cave on top of a mountaintop. I was in Northern India in the, in the Himalayan foothills. And so this friend and a couple of other friends and I, um, hiked up this, this mountain to this top and, um, and this, this yogi was apparently a hundred years old. And, um, and so I entered the cave and again, I was sort of like, part of me was cynical. Like this guy's can't be real. This has got to be like someone stuck this guy up there and is like paying them or something. You know, the cynical part of me was right. utterly up and, you know, and he's like going to have a, his hand out for money or something. And, <laughs> but I crawled inside on the ground and, and I looked up. And there was this ancient hundred-year-old yogi um, sitting by a fire, stirring uh, stirring a pot of tea. And um, one by one, we approached him, and, and I, I I bowed at his feet, which is what was expected. And as I had my head on the ground, um, I was just like, "Man, what what has this life turned into?" I was, you know, I was a successful writer. I was a then then I lost it all and became a junk dealer, and then. I became practically an invalid and um, and now here I'm bowing at the feet of a yogi in a cave. And as I began to, to bring my body back up, I felt him smack the top of my head. And I had I'd watched a lot of movies, a lot of, a lot of videos about about Eastern spirituality. And I'd come across this concept called Shaktipat. And so as I sat up, I looked into his eyes. I'll, I'll come back to Shaktipat. But um we stared into each other's eyes and i just began to lose it and to cry and i could not stop and it felt like i was crying for decades and and um decades of of you know stuff was just coming out as tears and and uh i spent the rest of the afternoon there with the yogi and and we asked him questions and through an interpreter and i eventually stopped crying that night um went back to this ashram where we were staying. I went to bed and the next morning I was, um, I get up early. I get up before dawn and, and I was up, um, sitting on this perch overlooking the valley, um, reading and drinking tea. And I saw these two birds and they seemed like they were partners. And it was just, I just started watching them with fascination. And then they took off and these two birds started flying out over the valley and then coming back, and they started forming these loop-de-loops, and I was just mesmerized by them. And eventually, <laughs> excuse me, I, I got up and I wanted to get some more tea. And, I, and as I did, I stumbled and I, I almost, you know, collapsed. And I caught myself. And then I walked back toward my the cabin where I was staying with my girlfriend, and a snake crawled in front of my path. I hadn't seen a snake in India. Um, no one had seen a snake in India and yet the snake crawled right in front of me and it was, its tail was vibrating the earth behind, the earth was squiggling behind where it went. And I looked up and in the sky, it, the, the mountains in the sky looked knitted together. There was just this kind of a golden haze 
I went down to my cabin and I told my girlfriend that I thought someone had slipped me acid uh, and I was serious. I thought, you know, I was starting to trip and, um, and my immediate reaction was to go to my, my dop kit and, and, you know, I may, I'm getting sick, you know, I'm, I, I need to take some antibiotics or take something, you know? Um, and I looked through my pills and I decided not to take anything. And I, and I, I said, I'm going to go back up and find those birds. And I went back up and, and this, this, this trip set in, you know, this, this mystical experience. And I could not connect with any of the suffering of my past. I could not connect with anything. I was, I was crying in, in joy and it lasted first for an hour, then three hours. It lasted for 12 hours. It lasted till from dawn till dusk. And as the sun went down over the valley, I began to come down and, you know, I was back to being Brad. Um, but I, I had also been changed forever. And I, I, I don't know if Neem Curly Baba had visited me. I suspect, you know, I'm a man of science, but I'm also, I got this altar here, you know, mm -hmm. uh, show you I and mean, this is neem yeah. curly baba and and i've got a side of me that is open to all of this to yeah. all the mystery and and i know that our faculties are not are not um sophisticated enough to experience everything that's going on in the in the universe around us we are limited beings and i don't i have any, don't have an explanation for any of this but it's become a part of my life i chant and and he's kind of a christ-like figure in modern times and he's he's dead now but um it's horrible how he died too you, you, you yeah the, the yogi the yeah, yeah the yogi in the cave yeah the, the yogi uh, you in know, the cave yeah yeah a year a year after i got back i was walking the river and i got a text and and it said um sad news um that that Baba, the the yogi in the cave, had died. He'd been murdered by thieves. At a hundred hundred and one years old. That's fucked. That's fucked. Yeah, um, it is. Yeah, but what I of the many things I loved about your story, and I I think that was a beautiful telling, and and you go even more into it in the book, and some of the other challenges you were having, and uh, at that time with. Yeah, you know your feet. I, I don't want to give yeah. too much away, but my I was reading that going, Jesus, man, just <laughs> sit down or something. Um, and then people in the next room are like, Kevin, why are you talking? I said, Shut up, I'm reading. All right, mm -hmm. no. But what I love, one of the things I love about your book is it's like, okay, this happened. I've meaning your childhood, the pain that you went through, the trauma, the canoe accident, uh, the scapegoating, etc. And you went a couple different paths to try to figure that out. And one took some years of your life basically away from you. Mm -hmm. And in the last chapter before the epilogue, uh, you say now is when our lives begin, not later. Yeah, that is. And you talk in um, the book about hope, about courage, and that is the most hopeful and grounding i think it's grounding to know that now is when our lives begin not later mm. and you said i was done revisiting because yeah. you had you had gone through all these things but you you talk a lot about how you were crying and 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 for hours and it's you know quite literally that is the trauma maybe leaving your body yeah. i mean just that letting all of that out so the hope the courage that you had to to pick yourself up and go after these things and try to understand and try to heal for yourself in the most authentic way possible and have that connection, as you said, what children need mm -hmm. uh, is a really, I mean, it's just, I, I can't recommend the book uh, enough. We'll have a link to it in the show notes where you can buy it into the soul of the world. Um, you know, as we're wrapping up, Brad, is there anything else that you want to add or make sure that you um, say, can say that maybe we didn't discuss today? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that, that helped me was discovering the word um, in in Sanskrit of, of shraddha, which is faith in San, uh, you know, uh, so I, I'd been, I've been struggling with this. Can I believe in something greater than myself yeah. again? And in the, in the Sanskrit word, Shraddha actually has this, this sense of trusting in the heart, trusting in the moment, trusting the next step, that kind of thing. And it, it I began to realize that, that belief is the wrong approach to, to, 
changing your life. It's the wrong approach to trying to have a spirituality. It's trusting, trusting in this moment, trusting that you have the resources you need, trusting that if you get knocked down, you can get back up again. And that became, you know, the way I think of, of, of my healing journey is, is just, I learned to trust in myself and, and, and in doing that, I began to start to see something greater than me. And I still struggle with spirituality. I don't have any answers. I just know that, that I would not have be here today had I not found some way to think of, of my life in a spiritual context by simply meaning something greater than myself, something, um, alive in me that is spirit that that uh, you know has has kept me going in these difficult times yeah and you know before we started recording i know that we we briefly spoke about spirituality and uh, you know you've said a number of times you know i'm a man of science i'm not you can't explain it it's just something that that has been there for you um i again i can't recommend the book enough and and i really resonated a lot of what you were saying in the book and uh, I admire what you've done and the journey that you've been on and the 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 authentic the authentic way in which you have found yourself and in which you continue to strive and try to live. Uh, I think it's really inspiring. And so I thank you very much for for being on the show and um, and for writing such a wonderful book into the soul of the world. Um, Brad, thank you so much for for being. Thank on you, today. Kevin. It's been a joy. And I really admire you in this program. So Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And um, wonderful story today. I'm going to go ahead and end the same way we do every week with a reminder that there is always room for kindness and grace, even with ourselves, especially with ourselves. There is always room for kindness and grace, and we will see you next time on Sad Times. You've been listening to a fourth-hand joint.